0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. In Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts.
1: Our brilliant guest this week is an author, filmmaker and co-host of the Conflicted podcast, Thomas Mall. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. It is great to have you here. Uh, tell everybody who you are, what's your story, how do you happen to be sitting in the chair that you are in right now?
2: Well, I don't know that. Uh, you guys <laughs> called me up, which I'm, yeah. I'm very pleased that you did. Uh, I'm Thomas Small. I'm American originally, though I've lived in England for about, well, in Europe for 19 years. So um,
0: Correct decision. So, yeah, so so
2: America seems like quite a, a long way away. Um, Who am I? I I left America as a young man and I wanted to, to be perfectly honest, I wanted to find God. I wanted to become one with God, a very strange young man kind of thing to want to do. I ended up uh, spending several years in and out of Greek Orthodox monasteries in the Eastern Mediterranean. Wow. Um, And thinking thinking of becoming a monk, deciding not to become a monk, traveling more widely uh, around the Middle East, deciding the Middle East was an interesting place. Went to university here in London to study Arabic. And then uh, having spent a year in Damascus learning that language and then traveling more, I became a documentary filmmaker and I make films in Arabic for for Arabs to watch.
1: Mm. And uh, you also have uh, the Conflicted podcast, which I, I introduced at the beginning. Interesting. I, I listened to the first five minutes of the first episode and I was like, okay, this is going to be good. Uh, it, it does have that real capture feel to it. Uh, tell people a little bit about how it happened, what you do, and how you met your co-host and, and a bit
2: about him as well. Conflicted, uh, which I host along with my friend Eamon Dean, uh, is, is is I think, different. I'm glad that you, you, you liked it uh, as you did. I mean, Eamon is a fascinating person. He... Uh, is a Saudi-born guy. Uh, at the age of 16, I think, or maybe 15, I can't remember. He joined uh, the the jihad in Bosnia and became a jihadist. And then, having wend his way through wended his way through different uh, uh, jihad fronts, he ended up joining Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, swearing allegiance to Osama bin Laden in person. And then, a year or so later. Uh, realized, I don't really think we should be slaughtering thousands of innocent people. So he left Al Qaeda and joined MI6 and became MI6's top double agent inside Al Qaeda. Uh, now I met him during while I was working on a film uh, called Path of Blood, a feature film that tells the story of an Al-Qaeda campaign inside Saudi Arabia. I met up with him during that period for research pur- purposes and we immediately hit it off, became friends. He is a font of amazing stories as you can imagine with that biography um, and his analytical powers, especially when it comes to Middle Eastern politics and and uh, ideological trends within the Middle East are, are constantly fascinating. So. Uh, we decided. Well, we were approached by a producer to do a podcast because, uh, you know, he, he thought we would have something to offer, and a bit like this show, it's quite conversational. We're friends. It's not too antagonistic or a confront or or. or um, you know, aggressive. It's just two friends talking about this extremely
0: complicated subject. Have you ever joined the
1: terrorist organization, Francis?
2: I don't
0: think they'd have me, mate. <laughs> I
2: think <laughs> you I'd don't have the general fitness. Yeah, yeah, I Dude, you watch Path of Blood, and you will see that they will have
0: anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think they'd strap a terrorist vest on you and say, "Go, <laughs> okay, go, go! You will not be missed. You <laughs> <laughs> will be gone." But uh, so I mean, you've got quite the backstory. So you 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 do documentary films in Arabic. I mean, what, how do the Middle East perceive the West, in particular America, at this moment? And in terms of focusing in on Trump and possibly the embassy in Israel? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Let's start small. Go yeah. big later.
2: I mean, the first thing is, is that people who have black and white views on the Middle East uh, are, are tend, you know, it, it tends to reveal thereby that they don't know very much. So the Middle East is extremely enormous. It's extremely complicated. So, what the Middle East thinks about America is impossible to say. What you're saying is a stupid question. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a stupid question. It's a common question, but you know, commonly stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but you know, the Middle East is 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 diverse. You know, mm. Arabs are extremely diverse. Uh, and the Middle East has more than just Arabs. There yeah. are Kurds. There are Turks. There are all sorts of people, all sorts of religions, not just Muslims. Within Islam, there are so many different sects. Mm. So. It's it's complicated. I would say in general, I mean, I, and, and, and my my sort of exposure to the Middle East, Middle East tends to come more at a higher political level and mainly Gulf sort of centered because that's where the money is, that's where actually more, more and more the power is. Uh, and certainly when it comes to the way the Gulf perceives America, they tend and have always tended to perceive America very positively because... It is, it, America is a, a great ally of theirs. They are a great ally of America. Um, America's military umbra- umbrella has always protected the Gulf states from aggression uh, during the Cold War, aggression from various uh, Russian kind of moves within the Middle East and now in their minds from Iran which for them is the greatest the greater threat. Uh, during the Obama period the Gulf relationship became quite strained with America because Obama Adopted a different, a, a new foreign policy. He pivoted towards Iran and wished to bring Iran out from the cold, in from the cold, <laughs> and um, and and he negotiated the atomic treaty, you know, the atomic bomb treaty with them, which Trump has recently cancelled. Which and so now the, the Gulf are sort of more, ha- ha- they're happier with Trump than they were with Obama for sure. Yeah. The average like Middle Easterner on the ground. You know, again, you got you can take your pick. You have liberal Middle Easterners who probably see America as a good dish thing that, in general, you know, inspires them. Uh, although they're probably annoyed that, like, they invaded Iraq and and contributed to the destruction of that massive country um, to some extent. Uh, you have Islamist Middle Easterners who pr- think America is the Great Satan. You have everything in between. Mm. Now, as it comes to Israel, the same thing applies. Uh, in general. Uh, you know, in general, Muslims have, in general, opposed the state of Israel and opposed Zionism. That was certainly the case in the high water years of anti-Israeli sentiment: '70s, '80s, '90s. Sorry, before you go on, just
1: define Zionism for people because it's an it's a word that gets thrown around. A lot of yeah. people don't know what it means. Uh,
2: well, I mean, I think the easiest way is to say that Zionism is uh, the is is. is Israeli nationalism. It's the idea, the political idea, that the Jews deserve a nation state of their own, and that that nation state should be in the Holy Land, Zion, the mountain around which Jerusalem was built, uh, and that is called Zionism. So it's just like any form of nationalism. It's just the Jewish form. now, it's complicated because Jews are a great diaspora, as you know, and um, and they don't all live there. And many of them oppose the state of Israel, and it's all very complicated. But I think that's what Zionism is. Jewish nationalism focused on the Holy Land. And Muslims have tended to to uh, oppose, that. oppose it. In more recent years, because uh, that has slightly changed. I think, you know, I don't know, the Arab in the street or the Muslim on the street may feel the same way, although I think I get a sense that there's a kind of Israel-Palestine exhaustion, you know, because the the, the conflict is intractable, it's going on forever and ever. There seems to be never any solution. I think a lot of people are just worn out. Uh, A lot of Muslims, I should say, a lot of Arabs just kind of are sick of it, I think. But certainly at the higher levels, there has been a, a massive thawing in relations between Arab governments and Israel, because for various reasons. One is that they feel they have a common enemy in Iran. So they have knit themselves quite closely together on the security front, certainly, to combat that threat. Um, but
1: And why this fear of Iran? Is it because oh. of what we hear that Iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons? Obviously, there's a, they're from a different uh, f- faction of Islam
2: than the Gulf states, right? Well, yes, there are Shia. Shia. I mean, the, yeah. the Iranians are largely Shia mm-hmm. uh, Muslims, particularly what's called Twelver Shia, which is a subset within the greater Shia. Uh, and then on top of their Twelver Shiaism, they have embraced or it has been imposed upon them what, what we might call Khomeinism, named after the Ayatollah Khomeini, the leading light of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, which fused Shia-Iran, Shia-Iranian sort of uh, religious ideas with Bolshevik kind of revolutionary ideas and millenarian apocalyptic ideas into this new thing mm-hmm. overthrew the Shah and created this new state, the Islamic Republic of Iran, in the constitution of which is a commitment to spread the revolution beyond its borders. Now that is obviously threatening uh, in general, that you have a very powerful, oil-rich state with an enormous military that uh, in its constitution is, has sworn to, ex- to sort of destabilize, topple and conquer other states. <laughs> now whether they can actually do it, mm. fine, who knows. But they are sworn to do it and it's in their constitution. So for the last 40 years, most of its neighbors have, been, have felt threatened because Iran is literally threatening them. At the same time, for all of that time, Iran has sponsored, uh, organized, paid for an unbelievable network of of, of non-state actors throughout the region, militias, armies, jihadist groups, most of them Shia, not all of them Shia, because ultimately the mullahs of Iran are happy to get into bed with anyone that might destabilize the nation-states of the the Arab world. Um, So it's not like—the question shouldn't be why— Why do they fear Iran? It should be obvious. Iranian proxies effectively control Iraq through Shia militias that are constantly destabilizing that country. They they effectively control Lebanon through Hezbollah, which they pay and for and run. Uh, And you know Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is open 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 agent of the Iranian state. And they basically have squeezed uh, the Lebanese government. They, you know, there are definitely underground cells of Iranian activists, funded activists and militants throughout the Gulf states. And the Houthis in Yemen are certainly Iranian allied and Hezbollah trained. And they have effectively conquered half of Yemen and control the government apparatus there. So it's not, why are they afraid? There is actually a campaign right now uh, by, by the Iranian state to destabilize those countries. The Iranians would say, oh, this isn't offensive, this is defensive. Our network of militias, and they're very open about this. They're especially open these days. I don't know if you know that in the last few months, there have been terrible floods in Iran, terrible, terrible floods. Thousands of people have died really bad. And for the first time, Iran has actually flown in its militants from its its proxies Elsewhere, Afghan jihadists who have been in the in, in who, were, who Iran sent to the fields of Syria. Oh, of course, they control Syria. I forgot that <laughs> through Bashar al-Assad, they control Syria. So that's another big thing that they now control, um, and they they have flown in these proxies from outside Iran, and they have ordered them to help with the flood recovery effort, and they they've very much sort of broadcast this on Iranian TV, saying, look, these are our friends. See, they're helping us. They're helping us save you from floods. So they're open about these proxies, these militants that they support. Um, And I forgot. I've lost my train of thought. Um, Well, the
1: question was about Iran and why the conflict between
2: them and other nations Well, that's the answer. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So sorry, uh, I think no, I, that's perfect. <laughs> that's a perfect no, answer yeah, to that it's, question. It's, great, it's a okay. big question. So well, it's a big, well, big, it's, a big it's a big area. Oh, so, so no, it. I know what I was saying. So okay. the Iranians would say they're defending themselves. Yes. Yeah. So they 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 think that that you know the United States of America and its allies, which according to Iranian sort of rhetoric is the Great Satan, mm. um, it has its has its designs on Iran and has always had its designs on Iran. Uh, it's true that before the Iranian Revolution, during the period of the Shah, Iran was very closely integrated into the global America American-dominated order. Well, let's say the American side of the Cold War, uh, in, in the Cold War. And it's true that certainly the CIA you know, got into various uh, activities within Iran and Iranians began to resent that fact. Uh, and so ever since the revolution, there's been this idea that, that we are under threat from America. We have to protect ourselves. So they would say these proxies protect us. They give us leverage. They, they, you know, they can say to America, you attack us and we will order our, our people to attack Beirut or attack Yemen or attack uh, Baghdad. Um, that's what they would say. I think that that's nonsense. I think that they actually, because that's what they openly declaim every Friday in their sermons, they actually wish to, in some kind of religiously inflected way, conquer the Holy Lands and Mecca, and bring in the end times and all this stuff.
0: I've got to say, I've admired my restraint when you're saying they're funding terrorist cells. On my, on my end of my tongue was like, Is one of them the Labour Party? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. below, below the
2: bell, below the suicide <laughs>
0: bell. <laughs> <laughs> well, l- listen, let me ask you a, a broader
1: question about the Middle East because you know, as we were talking before we started, because my
0: question wasn't broad enough,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> um, when when you start to study and understand, uh, attempt to understand this region, and you obviously understand it very well, you you say, I think rightly, that everything becomes more complicated. But I, I almost feel like if you want to understand why the Middle East is so complicated, you just have to look at the map of it uh, because of the straight lines that you see everywhere. And you go back to the British and the French carving these countries out of thin air, creating places like Syria where you've got all kinds of different tribes living in one country and almost like the only way to control that kind of place is to be a dictator like Assad and Hussein in Iraq, again, an artificially created country, or Bashar al-Assad or or Gaddafi in Libya, like all of these places, uh, they're so multi-ethnic and multi-religious and all these groups have been fighting each other for centuries. Is it inevitable, almost, that you end up with these strongmen dictators in all these places because of the history of colonialism and, and the, the legacy that we left?
2: Um, is it, you left? is <laughs> it inevitable? Again, gosh, what a huge question. Yeah. Uh, I, I think a lot, of my friend, a lot of my Middle Eastern friends say that. Uh, certainly, they say, you know, I mean, I have an Egyptian friend who, when the Arab Spring happened, which then at first ushered in a Muslim Brotherhood government uh, which was seen as threatening to some actors there and other actors who then sponsored a coup and returned a military dictator to power. Uh, I have an Egyptian friend who said, that's right, that's what we need. Egyptians can only be governed with an iron fist. Uh, an Iraqi friend says the same thing about, about Iraq. Iraqis have always been dominated by a strong man for 5,000 years, that's how it's run, they need one, we're, you know, we're crazy. That's what they say. I, I don't necessarily know if it's inevitable that those polities need to be run in an authoritarian way. It certainly is the case. Um, I mean, I also think that there's a, there's a narrative which says that the countries of the Middle East were invented by, by the European colonial powers mm. in an almost arbitrary way. This narrative is grossly exaggerated. It's, it's not really true. I mean, most of the those, boor, you know, if you look at the infamous Sykes picot agreement and the map that they kind of drew, it actually isn't equivalent to the map as it exists in the Middle East today. People don't often recognize that fact because, you know, and a lot of historical research has proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that when the Ottoman Empire, which ruled over that region for 400 years, collapsed, following the First World War, and there was a great scramble by the colonial powers to stamp their control over that region. They couldn't really just control it, and and there was an upswell from the ground, as you would imagine, as the imperial power uh, retreats of various attempts on their own, on on the part of the local actors to gain control. You know, various tribal alliances and, and movements and, you know, some ethnic, some religious, and there was a great scramble. And in the end, a lot of those borders were determined by those actors and their relationship with the new colonial powers. And, and more or less, the borders correspond to Ottoman provinces. So I think too much is made of this as if like the problems in the Middle East are to do with the with the West just kind of messing it up. We played a role. There's no question we played a role. But what we're really seeing is the is the after effects of the collapse of a massive empire. Yeah. It's 100 years ago now that it happened, but the consequences are with us. When a huge centralized, well-established, efficiently run for a lot of its history empire collapses, what happens? What ki- what kind of politics does that give rise to? What kind of leaders come to the come to the fore? You know, in the in the case of the Middle East, military ones, authoritarians, kings, Authoritarian kings, absolute monarchy. You know. So
1: I guess my point was less about blaming the West necessarily. But for example, the Soviet Union collapsed. And because it contained within it, broadly speaking, uh, countries which were consistent in terms of ethnicity, in terms of language, etc. So Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia didn't need to have you know, a massive war, or any disputes, there were some conflicts mm-hmm. regionally between uh, different countries. But broadly speaking, those countries kind of made sense. Yeah. Whereas Iraq, for example, you know, you have Sunnis, Shia, Kurds, who all pretty much have been fighting for a very long time, as you just explained with Iran, don't really get on very mm-hmm. well. Uh, Kurds want their own country. Anyway. Like, mm-hmm. And you look at almost any country in the region, and, and they have an element of that. Uh, Syria, again, another example.
2: Yeah, the diversity. I mean, I think, again, historically, especially during the Ottoman period, the Middle East was extremely peaceful Mm. uh, because the whole region was controlled by two empires, the Ottoman and the Safavid and its successor empires in Iran. So two states controlled what are now a myriad uh, of states. Uh, It was Europe that was not peaceful during those centuries. Europeans were slaughtering each other constantly. But the Middle East was stable, so this idea that like Shia and Sunni have been fighting forever and Kurds, are, it's not really true. Again, it's not really true. It is the consequence of the collapse of that, impu- of that arrangement and the introduction into the region of nationalism, ethno-nationalism, which Europeans invented as a, as a, um, a kind of political principle, into a, into a region, the traditional governing structures of which couldn't cope with it because it was such a patchwork. You know, a Kurdish village next to a an Assyrian village next to an Arab village that's Shiite next to an Arab village that's half Christian, half Sunni. How do you, and, and, and in a in a region that has had for centuries a governing philosophy based on your religion, not based on your ethnicity or your language. So how do you square that weird circle? Well, it causes conflict. I mean, that so that I think is more, it's a more recent phenomenon than that idea like they've been fighting each other mm. forever. It's not really true. They haven't been fighting each other forever. The strong men dictators of the, of the Arab world, of the Middle East, have tried to forge through violence nation states out of an incredible patchwork of people who didn't feel united based on nationality originally. They do now. I mean, to some large extent. That, that effort succeeded, and, you know, Iraqis do feel Iraqi, and Saudis do feel Saudi, and Egyptians certainly feel Egyptian. But that just took, well, it took the same amount of violence as it took us in Europe. We were very violent as we were forging these new identities. So that's that side, which explains, if I may kind of tent, go on a tangent, which explains actually the appeal on the rise of Islamism as a, as a political philosophy, because these, because these people, uh, you know, they actually had thought of themselves first and foremost as Muslims, not as Kurds, and not as Iraqis and not as Syrians. So it was much easier for a a kind of political philosophy that attempted to unite them into one polity, which, you know, that idea underlies movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and whatever. That's why that that has so much appeal. It appeals instinctively because they have that identity. any like in, in the Christian world, a philosophy that was predicated on the fact that we're all Christians wouldn't get off the ground because actually, yeah, f- the people of the West are majority Christian, but it doesn't actually anchor our identity. Well, we don't, well, right? we, don't have, well we, we don't have a history of the Caliphate. Well we don't have a history of the Caliphate, but we did have a history of a great Christian imperium hmm. which then came unstuck in the 16th century and then then evolved into nation-states which then fought each other. Brutally, which then has given rise to movements of transnational movements like the EU and like the United Nations, you know So the you know these Again, I'm giving a very complex answer to this huge question. Yeah, um, and I hope that it's not too confusing No, it's no, very no, coherent. no it's, very coherent. it's
0: very coherent and you know very interesting Why Why is it that? Uh, oh, this is going to be another broad question. We always see, you know, America getting involved, Britain getting involved And then it never seems to end well. Mm. And then you always get people, majority of them on the left, going, the only reason they're getting involved is because of oil, all the rest of it. How much of this is the West getting involved in these countries because, you know, they want it to be stable, they want them to live under a democracy, they want freedom of, of law, all the rest of it? And how much of it is because of oil or other nefarious activities?
2: Um... I couldn't quantify it. It's a mixture and it's a very uncomfortable mixture. Uh, I mean, a recent report came out, I can't remember what, but I, I found it very interesting, which basically proves by marshalling a whole amount of evidence that the Iraq War of 2003, for example, was not about oil. This is a great, a great myth The oil companies, particularly American oil companies, utterly opposed the invasion of Iraq. They totally opposed it. It was not in their interests whatsoever. And the neocons that informed the, ideolo- the the foreign policy of George W. Bush didn't care. They actually were obsessed with the idea of bringing democracy to the Middle East. I think they were ideologically committed, neoconservative, hyper liberal liberals. And they actually thought that, in some kind of um, ma- like but through some magic, uh, that I think they think that the natural state of mankind is, is democratic liberalism.
0: <laughs>
2: a lot of people forget this, that democratic liberalism is a highly evolved, highly complex, manufactured form of, of, of social governance. Uh, it, it, it's not natural at all. It is highly unnatural. But they sort of thought that. They thought you lob a grenade into the middle of the Middle East and you, you, you topple the dictators and, and democracy will flourish. They, they believed that. So that that was really what that was about. Uh, the the oil companies, the American oil companies, opposed it. And following the war, the American oil companies have not profited from it. Uh, the oil contracts that the that the you know the the independent Iraqi government, largely you know influenced now by Iran, ironically, um, have, have awarded. Uh, the oil contracts they've awarded have not gone to American companies mm, that's I mean, true actually we had Chinese a, and others
1: we had a former pr- uh, presidential advisor on the show, and she didn't we didn't talk with her about this, but that was one of, I, I kept badgering her in the pub about this and going, yeah, but wasn't it about oil and she was going, well, actually American companies didn't get any of the oil contracts for the actual oil they got like Halliburton got some like some at the beginning Halliburton stuff. got some yeah. that's right but it, it wasn't that big but now, but there are other areas in the middle, like the Gulf, yeah.
2: The Gulf originally was important geostrategically in the British imperial period because of way stations along the route to India. So it was basically the Gulf has is geostrategically important just because of its location. It just along these inc- incredibly important waterways, the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, the Strait of Hormuz on the on the way into the Indian Ocean. So it would be an important place Anyway, for any global order that sought to maintain free market, free open trade routes, you know, because it's so important, the discovery of the world's largest oil and gas supplies increased that mm-hmm. that importance enormously. And so, yes, to some large extent, the the Middle East, the, the actual Gulf, you know, the heart of the Arabia itself is important because of oil, um, and that remain that is. And the thing is, is that simply so? I mean, there's a kind of paranoid conspiracist perspective that would say that, that, you know, we only get involved in the Middle East because of oil, as if that's an option. You know, people don't quite understand how important oil is to the functioning of the entire world, (laughs) how the oil price, the price of oil underpins basically the price of everything because oil fuels this incredibly, amazingly powerful and productive global economy. Everything depends on the price of oil. The price of oil quintupled overnight. The global order would just kind of collapse because everything would get so expensive to produce. No one could afford it. It would cause massive price inflation. You know, so it's not arbitrary. There's no choice but to care about oil and to make sure that it is stable, that the price is clear, that the price, uh, you know, reflects more or less market conditions. People who think that you could just kind of wash your hands of caring about that problem, they don't understand how, how important it is.
0: Well, I know it's just another great answer because I never really thought of it like that. I never thought that actually, of course, everything is dependent on oil. Therefore, why, they, therefore it makes complete sense for them to be involved. Well, half the stuff you're wearing now is made of oil. <laughs> Thanks mate. No this no is, I'm uh, serious. Yeah. yeah Plastic well, half yeah,
1: you, I mean, most of
2: your shoes is made Yeah
0: is
1: people it?
2: don't under, actually understand what how the importance of petroleum as a product. Yeah. They think they think of it as like it's in cars. They just yeah. think well oh, we no. drive we'll just drive less or something. They don't understand that as a product petroleum. Now you can be some kind of you know luddite or some kind of you know, romantic pastoralist or something, you know, in fact, there's a part of my soul that is like I wanted to live. I wanted to be a monk at one point, for mm, goodness yeah. sake. So I'm not wholly invested in, you know, ever, you know, in consumerism and stuff. If that's what you want, great. I mean, in fact, nothing is preventing you from living that life. But if you think that the world is going to embrace that, then you're just fooling yourself. You know, people actually don't want to go back to to subsistence farming levels of <laughs> so, Strangely so. enough, <laughs> live till 30, die
0: from toothache. No, they don't yet. want to. They don't yeah. want Maybe, to. Maybe God wants them to. But, they <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> but, and so looking at the Middle East, what has Trump's impact been? Because it, a lot of people go, you know, he's a racist, he's a bigot, he does this, he does that, he's, you know, and then, you know, the, the embassy now in Jerusalem, yeah. it's an inflammatory gesture. But what actually has been his impact?
2: Well, I mean, I, I mentioned his impact in the Gulf. The Gulf yeah. states were pleased to see the end of Obama. Yeah, uh, they think that Trump is a, a man they can they can work with better to counter Iran. And that seems to be happening as we record this because yeah. there's this great, you know, sense that is there going to be a war, in fact, uh, I mean, Trump has said he said last night, I don't want war with Iran. Who knows? Um, the Israel question is interesting. I mean, I don't know Trump. I would not ha- I didn't vote. You know, because I've lived here for a long time and I don't really think of my... I don't really think I should vote. Um, I, hey, I'm Russian. I voted. You <laughs> voted for... for, for Trump. For Trump. Just oh, for Trump. Oh, 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 <laughs> just oh, sorry. Uh, I wouldn't have voted for Trump. Uh, I don't understand his psychology. Um, I don't pretend to. I think he does seem to have this kind of um, bullish realism about his, in his approach to things, unlike... George W. Bush, who was a neocon, or at least influenced by neocons, which is an ideologically idealistic point of view, democracy will spread, Mm. you know, through military means. Uh, He's not like Obama, who was also an idealist, but more of a kind of neoliberal um, academic center leftist type that, you know, if we just hold hands and wish very hard, everyone will be nice to each other. Um, including Iranian mullahs hell bent on the destruction of the Israeli state. Uh, so Trump is more like, well, is the Jerus- is is Jerusalem effectively the capital of Israel? Yes. Has it been so for over forty years? Yes. Ugh. Then it is. Mm-hmm. So you know he he doesn't necessarily have the nuanced appreciation of of, <laughs> of what that means, but just like recently with by he, by his ratifying israeli occupation of the golan heights you know they've 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 run the golan heights for decades so he just says let's get over it and move on they they you know israel r- r- runs it i think that's really what he he is he's doing uh, he called the bluff of the of the more liberal you know establishment say or foreign policy establishment because the blowback for these moves has been very minor Uh, Netanyahu was uh, re-elected to run Israel. The Arab states remain ever closer allied with that government to counter Iranian influence. Arabs on the street didn't rise up in great, tremendous protests. You know, there's Hamas and Israel fight, and they have been fighting recently, and that will continue. So, in a way, it's a fait accompli. It just happened, and because it's just recognizing facts on the ground, it seems to me.
0: So it's essentially a more pragmatic approach, a more world realistic
2: approach. It seems to be a more realistic approach. I mean, it is filtered through a psychology of of great, <laughs> of great wonderment uh, to the average view, you know Twitter viewer. But there there does seem to be something like a realist position informing it.
0: And w- why is it that the left aligns itself so strongly with the Palestinian cause? Um, well. They didn't
2: always, of course, which is interesting. Uh, Zionism was originally quite left-inflected. I mean, it was a nationalist movement, which we think of as a right-wing thing. But Zionists themselves, uh, the leading lights of Zionism, who tended to be, uh, well, a a large proportion of them tended to be kind of upper-middle-class educated Europeans, they tended to be liberally inclined and slightly even more like Radically inclined, uh, the Kibbutz movement was communitarian, mm. uh, and Zionism was seen as a kind of utopian, left-leaning movement. Mm. That changed in, with time as it was as the situation was reinterpreted. That were Israel was seen as a colonialist movement, a foreign aggression sponsored by the great Satan, <laughs> America. <laughs> so, you know, in a, in a Cold War context, America is the enemy of the left and supports the right. So you can see then why the friend of Israel, America, being on the right, means that the enemy of Israel, the Palestinians, is on the left. So left-wing people support them. You know, you have someone like Jeremy Corbyn, a person like that, who, like Noam Chomsky, you know, for him, it's slightly paranoid in a paranoid way, he sees America as effectively an evil actor on the world stage, and anything resisting anything to do with America must thereby be good. Which is why you know he has tended to uh, be vocal in support of Iran and Venezuela and such in Cuba and places like that that position themselves as opposed to the American empire. Great places to live, by the way. <laughs> so, so, you know, but and also, you know, it is true that the, the Palestinians have been given something like a raw deal mm. by history, by the Israeli government and by Israelis and by the re- and by their fellow Arabs, actually, who have not done them many favors, I think Palestinians haven't done themselves so many favors. It, it's a pity, I think, that they uh, first tended to throw their their uh, longing for prosperity and dignity into the, with the PLO, which was a very left-wing, Bolshevik kind of inspired movement uh, led by Yasser Arafat, of course, and then more recently Hamas, which is uh, Muslim Brotherhood, Islamist movement, um, and th- that hasn't served much purpose for the poor Palestinians who just ex- exist unhappily in their in their de- somewhat degraded state. Um, I mean, I haven't been to to Palestine for a long time, so I don't actually know what it is like on the ground. When I did visit it, you know, they were building the wall there, and I, I had friends in in Bethlehem, uh, well, Beit Jala. In fact, a Christian Palestinian family I went and stayed with, and you know. It was pretty depressing. You know, you could look down at this wall and, and, you know, clearly the economic differential between themselves and what they saw on the other side of the wall was vast. Um, but then at the same time, you know, suicide bombers and lobbing ro- rockets and, you know, to some extent, the Palestinian cause embraced violence as its, as its means of achieving its objectives. And when you embrace violence against a far greater enemy, you know, you're going to lose. So it, they might think of adopting other approaches. It's easy for me to say that. <laughs> I've often wondered, like, uh, imagine if a kind of Palestinian Gandhi could arise and, and, and employed pacifist means for achieving uh, those ends. Who knows what would happen? Would it, would it to some extent neutralize the power of, of Israeli aggression to get its aims? And would it, who knows? But that, that kind of a figure hasn't really arisen.
1: A what I find interesting about how how that issue in, in relation to your question is viewed in the West is you get people who clearly know nothing about the issue. Someone like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, in one of her first interviews that she did after, after being elected, uh, she was asked about Israel and Palestine and why she supports Palestine. And it was transparent for all to see that she had no idea what she was talking about mm. at all. She knew nothing about it. And yet, she was vehemently pro-Palestinian. Uh, and it seems to me like it's become an issue almost like uh, you know, these big American political issues. Are you pro-gun control or against gun control? Yeah, yeah. Are you pro-abortion or against them? And what you think about it is
2: determined not so much by what the facts are, but which party you're in. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a flag-waving wa- exercise, mm. I think. I mean, I am I'm, I'm not an expert on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue, by any means, uh, but it's. I, I think I know enough not to really stand up and wave the flag for either side. It's an incredibly complicated, ultimately quite tragic situation of a conflict of interests and a conflict of power aims and a conflict of nationalisms and religions and, you know, it's extremely complicated. Um, someone who just says, uh, you know, the Palestinians are only victims and um, the Israelis are only evil, uh, are as stupid as a as a as a really 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 uh, radical Zionist who would basically say the Palestinians are all terrorists and they never even lived in this land until the nineteen tens and you know etc. So I think you just have to. Ugh, it's complicated and sad. It's the Middle East is complicated and largely sad. <laughs>
1: Guys, we wanted to tell you we're very excited to say we've got a new sponsor, which is HelloFresh.
0: Indeed we have. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It is the easy, convenient
1: way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every single time.
0: Choose your favorites from 19 recipes every week. They have a whole range of options there for
1: you, including recipes that are ready in under 20 minutes. There's family favorites. There's British cuisine. There's world cuisine. There's even a 550 calorie or under range. And that's a great thing because as you may have noticed in the time that we've been doing the show, Francis has actually lost quite a bit of weight. So congratulations to him on going from being massively fat to just being really fat. That's great. And if you want to achieve the same results as Francis, keep eating lard. Uh, But if you want to be healthy and slim like me, check out these extra healthy recipes from HelloFresh.
0: The fresh ingredients come direct from suppliers, i.e. they've been picked by Constantine's family.
1: You you can tell Francis studied geography at a British school because you can't tell the difference between Russia and Romania.
0: Doesn't matter, mate. Same thing. Brexit means Brexit. (laughs) And the great thing is it's been pre-portioned for you. So there's no food waste, just like in my home country of Venezuela. (laughs) The great thing with Hello Fresh is that you're going to be able to choose from 19 different recipes every week. So there is something for everybody. You're going to be able to eat with your kids. There's going to be no fuss. Dinner time is going to be solved.
1: Yeah, I really like the rapid box, which allows you to cook things in under under 20 minutes. Uh, But the great thing about HelloFresh as well is it actually allows you to open up your cooking range. So most households on average have about six recipes that they cook regularly. Uh, HelloFresh has up to 19. So you can kind of expand a little bit in terms of your cooking. And of course, they also don't have a fixed subscription. So there's no term you can cancel, you can uh, skip weeks, you can change the size of the box, uh, you can change delivery address, you can do all kinds of stuff to suit your life. To enjoy delicious moments, head over to hellofresh.co.uk, choose your box, choose your delivery slot, and add your favorite recipes.
0: Discover the easy way to get delicious dinners from scratch, and if you do that, you'll get sick abs just like me. HelloFresh, you're offering Trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes.
1: To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, enter our special code, which is of course Trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. Speaking of conflicts, probably the biggest uh, conflict recently, and also in terms of the impact on the West, uh, the conflict probably that is driving many of the political shifts and problems and challenges and transformations and also maybe opportunities that we see now in the West with nationalism and uh, all of this kind of stuff. A lot of it seems to be linked to the conflict in Syria mm-hmm. and then the ensuing refugee crisis and, and it, it's like one big snowball that's, uh, that's happened. So in five minutes or less, <laughs> I mean not in five minutes or less, but just explain for anyone who doesn't understand or know much about it, how has that happened? What has happened? Was it the the collapse of Iraq and the emergence of ISIS there that then spread into Syria? Is that really a stupid question? You look at me like it no, is. No, no, uh,
2: no. That's not stupid. But I mean, it's not accurate.
1: This is the episode I'm getting. Destroyed on, <laughs> yeah,
2: it's not a stupid question. No, uh, uh, I lived in Syria for in 2007, 2008, and at, in that year, none of us who were living there would have thought um, that. That this was that the the country was going to become the byword for national collapse and civil war and death. It didn't seem like that was on the cards. Um, Four years later, it began. You know, originally, the. The Arab. I mean, the the episode. I think it's the fifth or fourth, fifth episode of our podcast. Conflicted uh, deals with the S- Syrian civil war, and Eamon had a lot of interesting things to say about it that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. One of the things he said, which that the protests that broke out in Syria during the beginning of the Arab Spring, you know, which was this much this sort of region wide uprising movement, the protests in Syria focused very clearly on essentially on a, on police brutality in that in that country. It was. Um, it had become de rigueur for the police within Syria to kidnap young 11 12 year old boys, rape them and deposit them in dumpsters as a way of of um, of scaring local populations into behaving and that's terrible mm. and so they they were rallying something like that happened in, in a southern town they rally, they, they Empowered, I guess, or inspired by the Arab Spring, they rose up and said, well, we actually would like this to stop. They petitioned the president, Bashar al-Assad, whom they had no interest in toppling, you know, come on, stop, just stop this, you know, bring the police under control. Instead of doing that, uh, he ordered or allowed the police to fire on the crowds, and then, then it just became, then it became a violent up- uprising. Syria is, is extremely important geographically. It's right there in the middle, it borders Turkey, which is a very strong NATO state, uh, which had for 400 years ruled Syria, of course. It borders, you know, Jordan, which is a a linchpin in the American security uh, apparatus. The Jordanian secret, uh, sort of CIA effectively, uh, is one of the world's best and most important in in combating Islamic terrorism, it borders Israel. We know what that means, and it borders uh, Lebanon, largely a failed state for 35 years. So, you know, it's very Im- and and Iraq, which by that point was kind of a failed state as well. So, it's very important. The this and it, Syria also has the misfortune of being a place where a lot of apocalyptic stories that that uh, Muslims and Islamists, especially, tell themselves about the end of days. Lots of villages are meant to play key roles in the story that brings the return of Jesus and 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 the judgment of the world and the ushering in of 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 the you know the, the end times sadly syria is is like the battleground for that in muslim eschatology so when a w- w- civil war broke out there it was a lot of you know radical islamist extremist jihadists thought the prophecies are coming true you see you know, it's all happening in Syria. So they kind of piled in, hoping to lure the West into intervening, because that's all part of the end of times scenario. I mean, in, in the scenarios, it's the Roman Empire which intervenes, and they think that the Roman Empire just stands for the West. Now, So they, they were trying to lure the West in because they thought that if they could do that, then the end of times would happen, and and they believe the end of times will result in their, in their favor. Uh, so Syria was, to some extent, like a sacri- sacrificed on the on the altar of those sorts of religious ideas, which is why there were so many Islamist groups. Iran, Iranian Islamist actors got involved because Iran has the same eschatological sort of ideas as the Sunnis. That they then started to fight, and, and it became a total mess. And then, you know, Turkey got involved obviously because the Kurds were involved, and the Kur- Turkey has Kurds, and they don't want the Kurds to rebel in Turkey. And then, and then. And then because of, a, of the Tartus naval base, Russia got involved and then Obama didn't, didn't actually respect the red lines he'd drawn. So Russia realized, oh, we can just actually, actually fight a war here. So they were throwing barrel bombs and bombing neighborhoods and America wasn't doing anything. And then ISIS rose. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as a result of which, there was tremendous migration away from Syria. Because who would you know want to live there? Terrible, yeah. um, and you know a lot of that migration went into Turkey, which you know, and then the UN and other institutions set up refugee camps. But then, and a lot of those migrants wanted to get in, get to Europe um, for, for safety reasons, and also like many migrants from everywhere for economic reasons. Um, and that became a, that trickle became a flood. I mean, I think there was some bad. Uh, there was some manipulation by the Turkish government. They were letting a lot of of migrants in. You know, to, they weren't policing migration because they wanted to use it as a bargaining chip with, particularly, the Germans, but EU in general, for various concessions which they received. Which is why then then they stopped letting the migrants through. So it all became a, a mess. And famously, Angela Merkel kind of said, "Come, come, come," and then like two million over a course of the summer came, and that. Freaked out the Hungarians and absolutely, you know, the, the poor Greeks were already on on their knees. They were they couldn't cope with all of these migrants and
1: Italians. And of course, yeah. it had a big impact even in this country. I mean, uh, even the Brexit referendum, yeah, was yeah. affected by people's concerns. I think that's right. And in some, you know, when two million people come, uh, as much compassion as you want to have, that's going to have an impact oh, on the society. Yeah, and yeah, there's no there's no getting away from that. Which is why I say it's had a huge impact here in the West as well as. In Syria, let me ask another incorrect and stupid question. I, I've, I've got a whole barrel of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like um, my sense is that the reason someone like Bashar al-Assad doesn't want to go, uh, didn't want to go when he when it may have been time. There was no one's calling for that anymore, but there was a time when they were. Uh, is that? If, I'm thinking if I were him, right? Because this guy, as far as I know, his background—he's not some you know, evil religious fanatic who's, who spent his childhood slitting people's no, throats for
2: entertainment. He's a different person. He's an ophthalmologist. <laughs> <laughs> he's an not, op- not an
1: ophthalmologist.
2: They're not all evil.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he was educated in the UK as far as I know,
2: right? He, he, he went to ophthalmology school in the UK.
1: Yeah. Uh, and he wasn't supposed to be president. His brother was. That's his right. older his, brother. And his yeah. brother died in like a car crash or a plane That's something. Right. And then he suddenly found himself having to do this. Um, so as far as I see, he doesn't strike me as this kind of just evil person who's just born evil and continues to be evil throughout their life for no reason. Right. So, but I put myself in his position and I go, well, what happened to the other people who went or who gave up or who tried to work with the West or who, who didn't try and fight uh, if you like Saddam Hussein, right. Uh, His son's brutally murdered in the street. He himself hanged, right. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi gave up his mass weapons or mass destruction program because he was promised assurance. He was given assurances by the West. You're nodding for a change, so I'm not talking (laughs) completely rubbish. No, no, I'm I'm
2: I'm I'm preparing my my my. So you're just going stupid, stupid, stupid. No, 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 no,
0: no. no. Uh, can I just say this has been my favourite episode <laughs> so far? <Really>? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, guess, this, I guess I guess you're the stupid happened. one most yeah, of the time. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, And He's, now his flaws have
1: been exposed. He is the stupid one, but on <laughs> <way>. <laughs> um, I'm I'm just the ignorant one on this, <laughs> so to say. So here's a guy who looks around and he goes, "Well, anyone who's tried to work with the West or who hasn't full heartedly opposed the West, right, ends up dead." Uh, the uh, Colonel Gaddafi was given these assurances the west pulled back uh, bombed i think as far they either bombed this convoy or let the rebels know where his convoy was going rebels i don't I know that if that's the case i, I think so i think so rebels show up beat him up rape him with a bayonet and i know that
2: right i've seen that
1: so if that's your your situation and you know what's going to happen to you and your family and your wife and your children yeah, gas. Whoever whoever needs to be gassed As most people. That would be their reaction. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: I do. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if the if the comparisons are entirely apt. I mean, Saddam Hussein didn't work with the West, uh, and so he got it in the end. Hmm. Gaddafi. I mean, okay, to some extent, the West be- be- betrayed him. I mean, I don't feel any. Sympathy for I'm him. I'm gonna say he's,
1: he's a, great a great guy. guy. i <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, not like yeah. But, should be like Ben Ali
2: down. of Tunisia, who left. Mm. You know, I, I now lives in Saudi Arabia. I think in some comfort. I think. I think that's. I mean, he certainly went to Saudi Arabia initially and lived mm. there. So it's you know I think there were other things on the table. Bashar al-Assad might have made arrangements to live in a, one of Putin's magnificent palaces in Russia, for example. Maybe they would have offered him safe haven and protected him from...
1: Yeah, the but he wants to live in Russia. I'm Russian. I don't or, even want to
2: live in <laughs> or, or Iran, you know, might... They could be share a more.
1: mansion with Edward Snowden. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, Bashar al-Assad, I don't understand his psychology. I think, I mean, evil, is he evil? I mean, his father was a tough bastard and a really wily one. Hmm. Um, I think that there was probably... Something amounting to psychological abuse in his childhood by being raised by that kind of a person, um, and I think it's pretty clear that when it became clear that he was going to be the president, when it wasn't expected before, his his brother, as you said, was going to be. I think he was, um, you know, he was immediately put through rigorous uh, dictator training, mm. which I, which you know, people have said really changed him. I mean, and, and also you have to see, I mean, the Syrian regime is like a, it's really like a mafia arrangement. So Bashar al-Assad is a bit like Michael Corleone in The Godfather. You know, he didn't, he also wasn't meant to take over the family business, mm. but then Sonny was killed and the, and he, and he tried to get out, but he just couldn't, he had to be, in. you know, he just becomes this great mobster and he has to shoot his own brother at the end of Godfather Two, and then he dies alone after his daughter's killed in Godfather Three. The difference is Michael Corleone is a sympathetic character because he actually wants to get out. I don't think there is any indication whatsoever that Bashar al-Assad wants to get out, thinks that he's done anything wrong. I think he thinks with some justification, I mean, I can see his point of view, that he s- saved Syria from Islamists from radical Sunni, ISIS-style Islamists. He believed he did that. I suppose, to some extent, he did do that. In the meantime, he destroyed the country. Um, so, 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 yeah, I think...
1: I guess what I'm saying it was, is, it was never, it, did he have a choice because if he left, he probably would have been killed, is what I'm saying. It
2: depends, I mean, those people, Gaddafi didn't leave. Gaddafi stayed, mm. he resisted the rebels, he was caught, he was raped to death. Mm. Uh, Saddam Hussein didn't leave. He mm-hmm. hid, he was found by the rebels, he was hanged. So Bashar al-Assad didn't even attempt to negotiate some kind of, some kind of deal with the globe, let's, let's with the UN, say, to get out. It could have been handled. It, there's no question that it could have been handled. Uh, as I say, Ben Ali of Tunisia now lives in, in Saudi Arabia, and no one's calling for him to go to The Hague for, to stand for any kind of trial. So I, I don't think... It's, it's about that, really. Mm. And in, in, earlier in the Nadis, Bashar al-Assad did actually kind of come in from the cold mm. with the West and formed suddenly this, it was called the Damascus Spring. It lasted from 2000, the year that he became president, to about 2003, 4 And he did suddenly seem like he was going to be different from his father and he was going to, you know, be warmer to the West and, and integrated into the global order better. Um, but then when the Iraq War happened... He, fearing he was maybe next, uh, turned away from the West again, allied close, more closely again with Iran, and also contributed vastly to the destabilization of Iraq by allowing Sunni jihadists to, out of Damascus prisons, actually, and sending them into Iraq to to cause uh, havoc there. So, you know, he, he he was yeah not a great guy. No, well, certainly not <laughs> a great guy.
0: I was just thinking of that when you were talking about The Godfather, we're going to need a warning. There's going to be spoilers for The Godfather oh, yeah, if you haven't sorry, seen it. Oh, yeah, sorry, you... Actually, we're a controversial <laughs> podcast. If you could do it with Game of Thrones and introduce some spoilers in <laughs> just to piss off some people. Oh, well, actually, I was going to ask, if you wa- do you watch Game of Thrones? No, I don't. And I, I, In fact, I told a
2: friend yesterday, I, I said, I don't watch Game of Thrones. I, uh, I work closely with the Gulf states and... Uh, and it's a, it's a real Game of Thrones. Well, so <laughs> see, you don't watch Game of Thrones either. I, I was going to tell you about
1: this great meme that I saw, but no, no, now now it's all
0: wasted. Yep, absolutely. So, what is the state? What is the state of the caliphate at the moment? Does it still exist? What is happening around that
2: area? Well, I mean, ISIS. You yes. mean? Um, it doesn't exist so much. I mean, it, it doesn't really exist as a as a state anymore. Uh, I mean, mm. it, it's it's been deprived of its geographical possessions. It certainly exists as a movement um, it, and there are still fighters and terrorists who are causing problems in that area and it continues to inspire um, jihadists and, and radical Islamists elsewhere. Whether it coordinates with them directly or not, I don't know. People don't necessarily know, but certainly it inspires and in the name of ISIS things continue to happen. Um, so, you, you know, I. The phenomenon of radical jihadism re- remains. Uh, it's not going away.
0: But no. even though, do you think and the state doesn't exist anymore and, and it's been defeated? Yes, I believe that to be the case. I mean, I, when, when when is a state defeated?
2: I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the caliph, Baghdadi, he's still alive. He's still around. He released a, a video of last week, I think, for the first time in several years announcing the fact that, you know, the cause goes on. So does it exist? Does it not exist? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't control, it doesn't militarily control anything like the kind of territory that it did. And, and the territory that it may control would be more like rural territory based on um, uh, like warlordism, old school kind of control, which would ebb and flow, but not like an actual state apparatus anymore, I think.
1: Why was ISIS so successful?
2: Why was ISIS so successful? Well, the Syrian civil war, Basically, caused a vacuum of power to open up in the, um, you know, the eastern. So the eastern Syrian desert blends into the western Iraqi desert. Before recent times, that zone was kind of open and was part of a wider Arabian desert zone where all the tribes, you know, the Bedouin tribes would move quite freely. It's only in in recent years as as the nation-state model has been imposed on those areas that anything like a difference has opened up. But the collapse of the Saddam Hussein regime and then the collapse of full control by the Bashar al-Assad regime over Syria reopened that zone. And it's interesting that, that that zone is basically the zone that became fell under the control of ISIS, which was a Sunni Arab movement. That that was closely united with with local tribal Sunni uh, warlords, sort of actors. Uh, They bought off their allegiance, I think, to some extent. To the extent that they were successful and getting extremely rich, uh, because they had taxation, and they, you know, they they they, it was a very rich movement. They were able to maintain the loyalty of those of those more local kind of actors. Um, But the, the short answer: they were successful because of the conditions of the collapse of Syria. It gave a jihadist group an opportunity to control land. In fact, it had happened before them in Yemen um, when after the Arab Spring there caused uh, destabilization of the previous regime uh, and prevented the capital Sana'a from projecting its power adequately across the whole country even though it had never really controlled the whole country directly because it's such a chaotic country. Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was based in the Hadramaut area, which is, which is on the sort of east side of, of Yemen, uh, was able to effectively control a huge amount of that country and erect state like structures and, and stuff. So that had already happened. So, you know, when the nation state crumbles in the Middle East, Islamist actors tend to, to uh, become empowered. Which is why someone like Eamon, and I would agree with him, my you know my co-host and conflicted would say, above all, we must support the nation states of the Middle East. We mustn't allow movements to destabilize those nation states, even if that means, in the short term, putting up with illiberal governments. That's what he would say, mm. and that was the common, the common uh, understanding. You know, it's the old school kind of Henry Kissinger style politic understanding. You must deal. You must support stability above all, and if that means you have to get into bed with some assholes, well, then you gotta get into bed with some assholes.
0: And so, the, the one question that I really wanted to ask before this interview was always, why is it, and, and it's, again, it's a really difficult question to answer, almost impossible, but why are they so effective at recruiting people from the West? Because, you, you know, the ISIS, you think, why would anybody want to go to Syria or the Caliphate? You know, what is the attraction? Well, I think great that... views. Sorry, <laughs> great views.
2: Yeah, good <laughs> weather. I think nice that nice and hot. Get a tan. That question is just a subset of. I mean, it's a, it's it's falls within a, a wider question of why is it why are they su- successful at recruiting so many people? Yeah. I mean, recruiting so many Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they recruit people in the West because we have a lot of Muslims in the West, um, and. A tiny, tiny mi- minority of Muslims, but enough to cause problems in Syria, were attracted to the message of ISIS. Why? My, you know, so it is really hard to understand. I don't understand why anyone was ever attracted to Bolshevik, uh, you know, terrorist cells. I don't understand that either. I'm not a radical. I do not seek to kill people in pursuit of some utopian aim, and I do not certainly do not uh, seek to kill myself. In that aim, I don't, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, ISIS tends to attract, or well, I mean, uh, jihadist groups tend to attract a wide range of people. They can kind of fall into two basic camps. You have an underclass kind of person who, you know, let's say, always a Muslim, obviously, because it's a Muslim movement, so an Islamic movement. So, an underclass Muslim who is Maybe maybe was involved in criminality of some kind, um, you know, drugs, like all forms of criminality actually drugs tend to play a role. They, yet they're Muslims, so they may seek some sense they want, they want to redeem, their, redeem themselves from their sin. And jihadist groups say, come, uh, blow yourself up or fight the jihad with us and your sins are forgiven. So that may be very appealing to a, some people. Uh, I mean, it also just appeals to sadists. They exist. There are sadists everywhere and there are Muslim sadists and if you tell someone, oh, you're a a sadist and in the West they police sadism, why don't you come here? We're not policing sadism at all. (laughs) We're empowering it. You can chop off heads and kill people indiscriminately. You know, that's appealing to a sadist. Mm Then there, you know there's another group which is more middle class, more educated because a lot of engineers I mean, at the higher levels of these terrorist groups there are a lot of like engineers and mathematicians because you know who's making the bombs? These it's complicated. Uh, it's complicated to make a to make a bomb, so it appeals to that kind of a person. Why they're more I think ideologically committed. They just they just believe in the world view that the Islamists um, peddle, which is you know kind of like it's like a paranoid. Uh, conspiratorial revolutionary worldview. It is not a million miles away from a left, a, a radical left-wing worldview. The kind of people who were like blowing themselves up and killing the czar, and bef- you know, in the run-up to the Russian Revolution, and uh, and people who were resisting the Nazis, and you know these two sides were fighting. is kind of they're just kind of radical. I don't understand. I really, I, to this day, I just don't understand why why people do it. See, the question I think most
1: people in this country would want to know is. Why is it happening here? Like, what do they want? Like, if 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 there was a button that we could press that did something, so that people would stop blowing themselves up in on the streets of Britain, what would that button? What would the label next to that button be? Is it uh, leave Iraq? Is it withdraw American bases from Saudi Arabia? What is it that With these them people want? aren't in Saudi Arabia, right. by the way. Yeah, <laughs> they were withdrawn. But that's America. what people say, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you hear that's why I'm repeating it. Uh, so. What is it that they want?
2: Um, They, I mean, ISIS wants this. ISIS wants to lure the West into an almighty battle in the Middle East because they believe that if they do that, it will trigger an end of time scenario where holy kind of Div- you know, spiritual warriors will come down from heaven and vanquish the enemy. So that's what they want. It's a good plan. <laughs> I mean, they—they—they—they they're, are—you know—they're crazy. They really are crazy. You know, you have to—you just read their—they believe this. So they are poke. You know, I think I think if I had to understand their strategy, if they just can convince enough Western uh, fellow travelers to to blow themselves up at pop concerts in Manchester or suddenly go on the rampage with knives and kill people in London Bridge or shoot up, uh, shoot up a, 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 um, a nightclub in Paris or you know, slice the neck of a priest in, Paris, in France while he's celebrating. If they can just poke the bear enough, maybe he'll come in and, and, and fight. It's hard for us to understand that. Like a lot of people think that they want America out of the Middle East. And they sort of say this. It's part of their rhetoric. I think it's because that's how they attract uh, recruits, as if they they position themselves as freedom fighters. We want America out. But it's not true. They actually want America in because they think if America comes in, then the end of times will happen. I think that's my understanding. That's crazy. That is absolutely, well, I mean, you have to be crazy to do what they do. These people are crazy. I mean, but also a hundred years ago, there were organized networks of radical Marxist Bolshevik terrorists everywhere who thought somehow through acts of violence, all of the working class ever would rise up, slaughter the bourgeoisie and utopia would emerge. (laughs) <laughs> they, all, they thought that. They're also stupid. That's yeah, but, crazy. But that
1: was different because they... So in Russia, for example, they had a very concrete plan for what they wanted to, to do, right? They wanted to overthrow the people who were oppressing them, who they they would say were oppressing the working class, uh, and make everybody equal. And, you know, someone who comes from Russia, everybody was equally poor, right? We, had, <laughs> we achieved that, right? Do you know
2: what I'm saying? Yeah. But this is just religious, like, bad shit mental stuff. I, I myself, I don't... I, I think that radical... Leftist utopian activism is equally religious in most ways. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's just it's materialist; it doesn't have a supernatural dimension, but it's equally predicated on crazy ideas. Fair enough. And, so, I, mean, I mean, and ISIS had, it has like a governing. It can, it, what does it want to do in, in terms of governance? Well, we saw. Yeah. You know, it erects an extremely draconian form of Sharia law over people while kind of running a mafia style. Uh, operation that fleeces people of their wealth in order to fund their... It's not actually so different from the Bolsheviks, to be honest. They
1: were all equal, (laughs) too. So so let me just finish this line of question, Francis, and that time's almost up. Um, What you're saying, then, is that the only way that we can really... Well, as I understand it, based on what you've said, it's not what you're saying, but based on what you've said, the only way we can stop terrorism in the West is just a security... It's a security issue. In other words, we have to catch these
2: people before they do this. Um, no. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I didn't know that. That's I, I, I don't know how to stop terrorism in the West. Hmm. I don't know. I, it's, I know that it would be very hard to completely stop it. I think, in general, in the West, we are very safe, and that there isn't actually that much terrorism. And that we, the West, especially this country, have gone through periods, uh, has gone through periods of more terrorism. I mean, the IRA was more successful at killing more people more frequently than Muslim terrorists have been here. Well, they should call you up before <laughs> 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 give you a bit of a warning. Uh, so, how do you? But how do you, So, I mean, I think that, I think that, along with my friend Eamon, you know, the co-host of this mm, podcast, mm. He, um, he, who is a Muslim, uh, he, a pious Muslim, you know. He believes that for this phenomenon to stop, Muslims themselves, like him, who believe that the Islamist inflected ideologies are not only bad in general, but also wrong interpretations of Islam, have to preach against them and have to create um, networks of, of more liberal, more at ease with modernity, uh, imams or preachers or movements, whatever. In general, they just need to combat inward, internally, they need to combat the Islamism. And I think that that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I, I grew up, you know, in a pretty liberal form of it, but a kind of, you know, evangelical American Reagan voting sort of fundamentalist Christian family. But you know, really, uh, much on, on the liberal side of that. Really, I mean, I don't—I wasn't like a Bible beater or anything. But I was associated—I associated with such people. And sometimes, you know, if you scratch the surface, I have really strange ideas about mm. about America and about Jesus and America and like you know America's destiny in some end times scenario. You know, I was raised to believe that that the end times were nigh and that America was going to play this big role in, in it. You know, it's kind of crazy. Uh, so how, And how do, you, how do you combat that idea? Well, you just expose people to less crazy ideas and hope that those crazy ideas push out the... those sane ideas push out the crazy ones. But beyond that, I don't know. O- obviously, security as well. I mean, the security services have to protect us from all forms of organized violence, don't they?
0: Hopefully. Um, hopefully, yeah. No. Um, and, uh, well, we've... I mean, we could talk for... A I know, days. sorry. It's a no, f- no, 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 no. Nothing okay. to do with yeah. you. <laughs> what,
1: what I should have said, actually, what I was going to say is I feel like none of the topics that we've opened up we uh, got anywhere near resolving, but... You gave some really fascinating insight, and I think what this gives people who are interested in these topics is an insight into what you guys talk about on, on Conflicted. conflicted yeah. Yeah. So
2: watch Conflicted or listen yeah. to Conflicted. Yeah, exactly.
0: yeah absolutely. So, I'm personally, I'm disappointed we didn't solve terrorism. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was my that was the whole point of this. Yeah, we, we failed. Yeah, well, I, I blame that on me on my stupid <laughs> questions. Yeah, I yeah. did, mate. Otherwise, we could have solved the whole ISIS thing. And still have time for Hernando's. Anyway, okay. So for our whole, last... I don't need Hernando's. <laughs> yeah. I, I look down on people. And Nandos. <laughs> no, I know, and that's why, just like ISIS, our mission is ultimately doomed. Right. Um, I had a
2: Nando's last week, don't worry. Did, did you enjoy it? Um, you know, Invariably, you do enjoy it. <laughs> feel a
0: little bit guilty. You do feel a bit guilty. But the last question that we always ask is, um, is we ask all well, our guests, is uh, what's the one thing that we're not talking about that we really should be talking about as a society?
2: Well, this has nothing to do with the Middle East. It has to do with sort of the West, I think. But I think what we're not talking about is how the crisis uh, of liberalism that we're now experiencing everywhere, liberalism is in crisis. Uh, Liberals call this the rise of populism. So-called populists call this whatever they want to call it. But liberalism is is in crisis. And what we're not talking about is the extent to which that um, is to do with the, the retreat from within our cultural sphere of of Christianity, of which it seems to be liberalism is a secular ghost. Um, I, th- I think liberalism thought that you could have all the good things that Christianity brought with none of the bad by just stripping Christianity out of anything supernatural, say, and then you have this secular liberalism. liberalism. But it, it's it's incredible. It doesn't seem to do the job. Um, I'm not. I don't know what the answer is because I don't think you know. I don't expect there to be this mass revival of Christianity or anything. But but I find often when people are debating current issues and all of the conflicts that are raging now in our society, the the fact that quite uniquely in human history we we are <clears throat> excuse me are we are living in the in the sort of rubble of a vast religious tradition. That we don't know anything about or really think about ever. I think, I often think, well, maybe it would be helpful if we knew, it would help if we knew more about it.
1: That's a very good point. Um, And it it was something we've talked about with a couple of previous guests, but the sense, and we're both non believers, but this just sense that religion is something that binds people together into local communities through their church or whatever uh, institution, and more broadly, as an identity, kind of like you talked about with Islamists having an identity that goes beyond the nation state or within the nation state in in Christian countries. The loss of that doesn't seem to be replaceable or the loss of meaning
2: doesn't seem to be replaceable in quite the same way. Yeah, not uh, the same way. It is replaceable. Other things bind people together. Hmm. But the question is, what are those things? And are they good? And are they good? I mean, religion wasn't uh, by any means wholly good either. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it, it, could, it could also bind people together in a bad way. It caused exactly.
0: a few arguments, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it continues to do so. But I'm not
2: actually talking so much about religion's power of binding people together. I think I'm talking about more about the fact that maybe... In this case, a religion like Christianity re- might actually, in some weird way, be true about some things that we're not even thinking about. You know, we, that it may address whole aspects of reality that we don't even think about. We're not encouraged to think about. Like what? Oh, like a, I mean, like give us one before we let you go. I mean, you know, I am a Christian, uh, though a very idiosyncratic one, um, and so you know, like the concept of like divine grace that there is animating human beings, their lives, and history, something like grace, that you can orient yourself towards through various means, usually by like being good, uh, and you can orient yourself away from. But that grace is actually a real thing, an actual thing that is real. Not material, it is spiritual, but it's real and may cause, it may lead to flourishing. And if it's not around, you may not flourish. Spiritually, I mean, because obviously materially, my God, do we flourish. But I think a lot of people feel that spiritually, we're not flourishing. But then I guess people don't really believe that spirit spirit is real. That's That's really what I mean. Is there spirit? Is it real? In Russia, we have a lot of it.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. That was a weird ending. Sorry. Yeah. That was brilliant. Yeah,
0: uh, was listen, great.
1: thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we have been so busy. We haven't had a chance to listen to all the episodes, but I will be going right now, pretty much, and listening to all of it. Thank it, you very much. I think it, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. It's a pity we couldn't have Eamon here, but when, you, when he's... Able to leave his security, <laughs> whatever. Uh, we'd love to have you both back on. Um, oh, great. I'd love to come back. Yeah. Eamon has to come. He- You'd
2: you love him. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's
1: uh, yeah I, th- I think so. And uh, I'll ask him less stupid questions because I- I've <laughs> now been informed by <laughs> they you. They
2: weren't stupid. Okay. <laughs> you said they were stupid. Yes. I know.
0: Because no, this they were... is good.
2: He needs the <laughs> yeah. ego this, to be changed.
1: This never happens. <laughs> it's always me making fun of Francis for mistakes that he actually makes. Justly so. It's all good. So I'm happy to take this one. Uh, and learn from this experience but anyway conflicted absolutely brilliant podcast check it out guys are you on twitter yourself or the
2: podcast i am on twitter i'm not the most active twitter user i actually think twitter is pretty stupid so do, <laughs> so do i but we use it very actively yeah so why didn't you tell us your twitter handle just in case people uh, want to i think follow. it's at small thumb t-h-o-m like thomas at yeah. small thumb i think yeah I'm cool well, well we'll put it in the video
1: as always follow us on stupid twitter facebook and instagram <laughs> at trigger uh subscribe to the youtube channel remember that this is also available uh, as a podcast to listen to as my producer is reminding me right now by just sitting there uh, and uh, as always uh, subscribe to the youtube channel as i said give us an itunes review if you enjoy this episode subscribe to us on patreon or give us money through paypal it allows us to continue to do the show
0: and also if you've got any ideas of how to solve ISIS uh give us a tweet <laughs> and on that note uh, we'll see you next week Bye-bye. see you in a week time bye